Hello, and welcome back to the Urology Care Podcast, the official podcast of the Urology Care Foundation. Our guest today is Jonathan Little, a penile cancer survivor from the UK who is here to share his story from diagnosis to remission. Jonathan talks about how a positive attitude and one step at a time mindset brought him to where he is today. So let's get started. Jonathan, welcome to the Urology Care Podcast, and thank you for taking time out of your day to have a conversation with us about your journey. My pleasure. Can you start by just giving us a little bit of background about yourself? Yeah, so I'm in my early 40s. I live in the countryside just outside London. I own a couple of tech companies. Um, I'm married with my wife about 17 years, I think, this year. Got two young kids, one six, one three. Yeah, so it really fairly active life. Um, try to run when I can, try and keep fit. Yeah, that's, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Okay, great. And so how did you first learn that you had penile cancer and what was that experience like for you? So to actually find out what I got wasn't a particularly quick journey. So here it started, it started with a kind of lump on the head of my penis and it was kind of hidden by four skin basically and for I think I was, on, I was on the way to kind of Peppa Pig World some kind of theme park with my kids and I had this unbearable itch all day I was in a car and I couldn't really work out what it was and um, it was yeah, kind of venting this smelly horrible sticky kind of fluid and I thought oh that's a bit weird so I, I googled it as you do and it came up the number of things it could be right so it was likely to be balanitis which is kind of an irritation if you like so over the weekend it got progressively worse and I went to see my GP probably Tuesday or Wednesday that week and um, he was pretty sure it was balanitis too so he gave me some some creams that were kind of impossible to administer by this time I couldn't retract my foreskin at all so it was kind of welded on and um, the, you know, the, the fluid kept going and uh, so he gave me some creams that I couldn't administer and this went on for about a week, a bit more, lump was getting bigger, aggressively more painful and more itchy and just uncomfortable to live with. And then, yeah, I got sent off to the sexual health clinic, which was interesting, but coming back negative, so I'd expect. And I went back to the doctor and he couldn't help me anymore. And he just expects me to kind of persist with these creams. So I've got private healthcare. It's quite, it's not unusual in the UK, but um, I've got private healthcare. So we, we use it whenever you, you kind of either want to jump the queue in the NHS or kind of target a particular specialist. So we were out of ideas. I'd started to develop this kind of dull ache in my groin as well, just one side of my groin. I could feel a kind of lump under the skin. It wasn't very big, but some of the marble. And um, I got a um, got a referral to a urologist, went to see him, and within about 10 seconds, he said, look, that's cancer. And yeah, I'm, I'm, if it was me, if I had it, I'd, I'd send you down to another guy called um, Professor Watkin. And um, yeah, the, the story started there, really. So from having an itch through to actually finding out it was penile cancer took weeks you know probably six or seven weeks so then what were the the next steps from from there and what was that process like 
Well, you know, you, when, when you hear it the first time, yes, yeah, such a ridiculously rare thing. So again, you get straight back onto Google and you think, you know, what's what's this gonna what's this gonna mean for me? Um, and you know, it, it, the, the guy I saw was quite quite a kind of senior consultant, and you know, he explained it and you know what was happening and that, that I needed to act fast, etc. But I suppose. The first thing, when you first hear, you don't really know what's going on. You don't know, you, know, you, you kind of, you, you're almost on the parallel universe when you've got cancer. So uh, I called my wife, actually, and I was sat in the car and um, I called my wife and I said, look, you know, it's, it's, it's cancer. And she was like, well, you know, what happens now? And so here, really, <laughs> what happens now? What's, what's going to happen? So... So I knew that I had another consultation with a genuine specialist in this area. So I had to go to Surrey. And I didn't really know much more than that. That you know, I had to go and see this guy who's going to tell me all about what cancer meant and how he was going to deal with it. And that happened really quickly. I think I saw the consultant on like a Friday or something, and I was booked in to see him on the Saturday. So I went along to his surgery and he checked me out. And by this time, the lump on the head of my penis was about an inch and a quarter to an inch and three quarters long, so it was really big. And it was, yeah, it was like a thick kind of worm, still under the forested skin, still couldn't move it. So he checked that out. And the lump in my groin had sort of grown to about the size of a golf ball. So he said, look, I'm, we're going to operate you on you this Wednesday. So from meeting the professor to being operated on inside three days, and um, he said, look, we don't really know what's underneath the foreskin, so we're going to have to remove it anyway. So you're going to get a circumcision. And if it's on the head of the penis, then, you know, we'll do a skin graft. We'll take a graft from somewhere else and we'll you know, do a skin graft on the head of the penis. And if it's not, if it's encapsulated on the foreskin, then, you know, you might lose, might lose some penis, you might not. You know, we just don't know what's going on. So those three days were very difficult for me because you don't know if you're going to kind of lose everything or you're going to have a stump or um, you don't really know until he's done the work. And, of course, that ring was true from being kind of put under and being operated on. You don't actually know what you're going to wake up with. Um, and of course, I had a big lump in my groin that needed to be operated on as well. And it was getting really big. It was growing uh, almost felt like hour by hour. It was almost breaking through the skin, a bit like alien. So he had to get that out. But we didn't know whether it spread anywhere else. So um, I stage three, grade three, cancer in the end so primary tumor on the head of the penis big one in the groin and they found some other stuff so yeah the, the kind of next steps were you need to get operated on that was the first thing so I turn up to this private hospital in Surrey and I'm prepped for theater and I get kind of five or ten minute overview about what he expects to do and what the, what kind of plan a is going to be and then what will happen if that doesn't go wrong, uh, doesn't go right, and you know, you have to look for options. And then, yeah, you go under, and I think I was under for about 
between three and four hours. So yeah, quite a quite a big operation. And so coming out of that surgery, what was your mindset like with the surgery? You know, you had a lot of, it seems like you had a lot of anticipation leading up to that surgery with, without knowing exactly what was going to happen. What was your thought process and how did things play out after that surgery? Yeah. So see it waking up after the surgery, I was really sick. So the anesthetic didn't agree with me at all. So, you know, I threw up everywhere and I felt really rough, really ropey. And, but I think I was just relieved. I think the first thing I remember the professor saying is, you know, it all went well. Um, just rest, I'll, I'll come and speak to you in the morning. But I had this big dressing kind of wrapped around my penis and I couldn't, and so you couldn't really feel anything. And I had a big um, dressing on, on my groin as well, where they kind of extracted a big tumour out of there. And, you know, I was laying in bed. You couldn't really move. You know, you're hooked up to kind of monitoring. And it's kind of late at night as well. I think I was the last person to be operated on, drifting in and out of sleep. And it was about half past one, 2 a.m., I think. I really I had the desperate urge to go to the toilet, but I couldn't. Um, and I had this urine retention. So to make matters worse, I had to have a catheter. Fit after I've just had all this penile surgery, I just had a catheter fitted as well. And um, yeah, they had to take out kind of almost two litres a year. Um, so yeah, that was quite uncomfortable. So that's the kind of initial thing I remember. But I was able to get up, move about, um, you know, walk around and kind of, aside from having a big bottle for kind of waste. So, so when your lymph nodes are removed in your groin, they process a lot of lymphatic fluid, a lot of kind of waste lymphatic fluid out of your legs. And I'm a big guy anyway, I'm about six, 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 seven. So they're producing an awful lot of this fluid. And when you take those lymph nodes away, you've got to get rid of that lymphatic fluid. So they fit a waste bottle um, with, with a kind of tube that goes in through your kind of tummy, if you like, and then it goes all the way down to the kind of middle of your thigh, and all of the lymphatic fluid is drawn out, and it goes in a white bottle, and over the days and weeks, you get less and less. So I'm carrying around my white bottle, and um, I've got my dressings on, and yeah, I'm, I feel sore, but I'm not, yeah, other than that, I'm kind of okay, I'm relieved that it's been done, you know, I'm relieved that I've got it over and done with. And I suppose I'm happy that the surgeon's happy. You know, I'm happy that he's been able to say to me, look, you know, this is a, it's, it was successful, you know, and we'll, we'll see what happens next. And, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> there's all kinds of things that, that, that go on, um, you know, that it's, it's just the beginning, basically. The surgery is just the beginning of the journey as you have to work out have a complete stage in and you know, what they're going to do next and the areas they're going to go to to find out if there's any more spread um, and then once they've done that then what the treatment plan looks like for things like chemotherapy and radiotherapy as well so on day one I'm up and about I'm able to eat and yeah I'm, I suppose overall it's just a feeling of relief really. That's wonderful. Yeah, I can imagine something like that would be a relief um, having that all 
all that anticipation leading up to this huge surgery. So with the recovery process, what were some of the, the treatments that they had you undergo after the surgery? And what was that journey like, you know, having the relief from the surgery, but knowing that there were still other things that you were going to need to go through? Yeah, it's, it's really, it's really difficult because you don't really know what to expect. You know, it's, it's easy, I think, for me to say now, it's, you know, you just do it one step at a time and you, you just get through it by not thinking too far ahead. So, you know, at this point, I just had to get through the next couple of days and get out of hospital, you know, and make sure that I was, you know, kind of capable of just looking after myself, looking after my, my wounds and all of that. So, you know, first I had to kind of get out of the hospital and I was picked up by my wife and my kids. And the first kind of drama was that I started to hemorrhage quite badly on the way home because I've had a, a circumcision, <laughs> one of these ones, where um, yeah, the, the kind of rest of your foreskin is, um, is sewn in tightly under the head of the penis, right? And because there's loads of blood goes through that area, when one of those little, when, a, when those little, um, what do you call it, stitches comes out, the blood is unbelievable. And it clots really quickly. So it's like having this jam. I guess you'd call it jelly, right? It's like having this blood jam. And every time you move, you bleed again. It's really heavy. And I was wearing these tracksuit bottoms on the way home. And they were kind of covered from like waist to knee. And yeah, it was really painful. And but you worry because the bleeding just doesn't stop. And you know, I remember going home and thinking, oh, I'm getting a shower and I'm gonna see how bad this is. And as I got in the shower, just putting kind of water on it, I found other places to break and stitch um, and for the stitches to come out. So I called the doctor and I said, Look, I'm bleeding, what do I do about it? He said, Well, look, what you need to do is to find some kitchen roll. And just kind of wrap it round, and it will clot. If it doesn't, give me, you know, give me a call again in an hour. So you know, I'm, I'm there with my with my kitchen roll wrapped around it, and it's right. It stops, you know. And over the coming days, it bleeds a bit more, but it stops a bit faster. And after say a week or so, it's kind of more healed you know and you, you get the feeling back so that's the first thing you have to deal with like the circumcision how are you gonna you've lived for 40 years without being circumcised how are you going to work out how to live with this new penis you know it's, it's clearly not new but i've never seen it before and so just things like how you wee how you you know how you get used to this thing the constant erections as well God knows how that happens, but after surgery, um, you just get these constant erections. I'll even get them with a catheter in. So yeah, getting used to that and getting these big erections and <laughs> yeah, you know, split more stitches and you just have to get used to that. You just have to get used to these weird things happening first off. And then there's the swelling. You know, so you some you know early on. The swelling because of surgery, because it's new and it's inflamed. And then because of the kind of lymphatic system being disrupted, you get other swelling in other areas as your body learns how to walk, um, how to work these things out. So yeah, swelling was the second thing that was really strange. 
and then you know having to take your the blood thinners, your warfarin um, or clexane every day where you have to inject it into your skin and your stomach or your um, leg so you're so you don't get clots so you're just dealing with the kind of daily management of that and the cocktail of pills that you have to do to manage infection risk and such like and all the time having to remember to apply vaseline to the head of your penis and apply some other weird eye cream for some reason um, so it's just remembering to do all this kind of maintenance so first off the first week or so is just getting over this um this kind of maintenance need if you like and then you check back in with the doctor and i go and see him on another uh, weekend and you know he's happy with my progress and you know he's pleased about how things are going and i think i didn't feel sad or i didn't feel downbeat throughout this whole period i i, I remember feeling particularly positive uh, for quite a long while really so i suppose after yeah after a couple of weeks and swelling started to go down things become a bit more manageable i'm getting less fluid in my waist bottle and it talks about what, what happens next in the plan so the next phase of staging was on the other side of my groin so if you have cancer in the penis the disease can go two ways so the first place it'll go is usually to one side of your groin so they had to test the other side to see if there's any more disease there so I booked back in a few weeks, a few weeks on, probably three or four weeks on, and they did another operation on the left-hand side of my groin and took all of those lymph nodes out. So again, another period with a waste bottle, more swelling, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They found, I think, there were like two cancerous cells in one of my lymph nodes, so they took all of those out. Now, because I had disease in both sides of my groin, that means I was stage three, and because of the speed at which it was progressed, it was grade three, right? So it's, it's quite serious by this point. And to complete my staging, so, so I, and that would mean I'd have another operation on my pelvis, on my pelvic lymph nodes. So I was quite used to, by now, it's a few weeks in, I was quite used to having this waste bottle thing, um, it was about Christmas time, I think. And they took out uh, one waste bottle, swapped it with another waste bottle, and I went off on my merry way. In, I think it might have been January, I felt really ill. I was getting these kind of hot, really, you know, hot sweats and cold sweats. It was like I had a really serious flu. And it was around the time when COVID first came in, actually. But, and I couldn't, and I thought, you know, oh, I've got this weird virus. But I hadn't at all. And um, I'd contracted sepsis. So my, my wound had become infected and my legs were kind of dark purple. So I've got this cellulitis thing going on. And I was really ill. I had like 40 degrees temperature. So I was admitted to hospital. And yeah, I had to be fed full of penicillin and God knows what to get this infection under control. And so that put back my staging by another, I don't know, six weeks, two months or something like that, as I got over this sepsis thing and my lymphatic system kind of 
was able to deal with things. But yeah, uh, sepsis was a really low point because I felt so weak. I don't think I've ever felt so ill in my life, actually. Yeah, sepsis was an absolute killer, you know. So I think I was in St George's big hospital in London for two or three days. I they're kind of getting over this thing, you know, it's on a drip and um, having to constantly be hydrated and loads of IV antibiotics and um, steroids to keep the swelling down, that dexamethasone just to keep things under control. And yeah, I got over that. And then I think we're in March. So I turned up for an operation and I was the last operation before the COVID pandemic in the UK. So it's a really, really busy hospital. I think it's the biggest hospital in the UK, certainly the biggest hospital in England. And uh, it's one of these hospitals that's always on the television. So you get these 24 hours and A&E kind of programs and it's a, it's a showcase of what a really busy hospital in a big city looks like, what they have to deal with every day. And it was kind of eerily quiet. I think half of the NHS had been told that they were going to go and work in these Nightingale hospitals, which were essentially military hospitals just to deal with the COVID pandemic. So the government requisitioned loads of these buildings to turn into kind of field hospitals and the army set them up. And the team that was operating on me was, was almost like the management of the hospital. I think I had three professors looking after me. And people had just come down basically to see the last operation until things changed. You know, it was a, nobody knew what was going to happen in March 2020. So I had this robotic procedure where the robot does all the work. So um, instead of having a, a traditional surgery where you're cut essentially from your belly button to your neck and they, you know, they do loads of deep surgery in your pelvis and find the lymph nodes they want to take out. Instead, the robot fills you up with air and it just drills in and picks out the lymph nodes that it wants. So it's really quick. Recovery time is really fast. I think I had sort of five or six stickers on me, uh, plasters on me. And um, apart from feeling a bit bloated and a bit ill, I had yeah, really quick recovery time. And yeah, fortunately, none of the nodes they found were positive. So my, my, my staging was fully complete, if you like. So yeah, after that, you know, we, we had to do, there, there are other things in terms of stage notes here, I probably haven't mentioned about things like nuclear medicine, if you're interested in that, where they uh, inject you with a radioactive fluid. They inject it all around the bottom of the head of the penis. And it doesn't matter how much local anaesthetic you have, you can still feel it. It's like puncturing through the skin. And they, they inject you with this radioactive fluid and then to see where all the lymphatic fluid is going to, to check if there's any nodes that they need to pull out. So they're looking for the path of this lymphatic fluid. So yeah, that's quite interesting as well. That's something I'd never want to do again. But yeah, after the station complete, I was I was transferred to another hospital called the Royal Marsden. And the Royal Marsden's quite a famous cancer hospital in the UK. It's got it's it's, it's got lots of support, um, lots of famous patrons. 
and it's 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 kind of in, in the south of England it's sort of leading cancer hospital there's another one in the north called the Christie which is well thought after but in London especially Royal Marsden's like the place to go is a cancer hospital so I uh, got new consultants got a new team and I was told that I was going to have uh, five or six cycles of chemotherapy, cisplatin, and I'd have to come in every day for radiotherapy treatment. And the radiotherapy treatment would be essentially to my groin and uh, kind of across the sort of band at the, at the top. So, yeah, I turned up and, and did that every day, and it causes huge disruption to your lymphatic system. So uh, I just kind of got over the point where I'd been swelling up and having trouble with my legs swelling, this lymphedema thing. I've kind of just got over that. And then the radiotherapy caused everything to swell, everything. And it was um, really uncomfortable. And the chemotherapy, because I'd had a week of this radiotherapy before the chemo came in, I discovered that during the chemotherapy, they give you a drug called dexamethasone, which is a kind of anti-inflammatory. And every time I was injected with this dexamethasone thing, the swelling disappeared. So I had all this swelling in my penis. My, my balls were the size of an outstretched hand, you know, it was absolutely enormous. And every time I had this dexamethasone, everything would shrink back in again. And I discovered that whenever I had swelling, I could take like a dexamethasone pill or whatever, and, and the swelling would go away. Anyway, over the sort of five or six weeks, the radiotherapy really took its toll, and there was lots of um, skin breakdown. And yeah, that had to be treated like a burns victim would have to be treated. And it's really uncomfortable. So I had these big long scabs and having to be wrapped with these burns dressings, and it was just totally impractical. And the chemotherapy made me feel really ill for a long time. Even though like I couldn't walk up hills, I'd sweat all the time, and had blinding headaches. Um, and I was driving this 150-mile round trip from my home in Hertfordshire, which is north of London round to Surrey which is kind of the, the total opposite the other side of London and yeah I'd, I'd regularly have to just pull over somewhere and have a little sleep on the way home <laughs> yeah it, 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 looking back on it now it's amazing the things you do during treatment but yeah I think if I was to do it again I'd never have done that I'd never have kind of just done the driving myself I'd have found another way you know it was um doing that that whole cocktail of chemo drugs every Monday, and then just when you start to feel better again, they hit you with another cycle of it. And the first one is horrendous. It's just like nothing you've ever had in your life. It's like the worst hangover, plus the worst food poisoning <laughs> you know, you've ever had. And you're just not in control of anything at all. And yeah, you, if you mix that with the radiotherapy at the same time, because apparently that has the best effect on this particular type of cancer. The radiotherapy makes you really tired and it makes you really sore. And it makes you really irritable. And then the chemo drugs just make you feel like death 
you know, that, that feel just really, really ill. So yeah, for five or six weeks, I was just intolerable. Yeah, everything was painful and I was irritable and it was, yeah, it was a really difficult time. So you said that that last surgery that you had before the chemo was right before COVID. So what was that like, you know, with everything happening with COVID and then kind of continuing your recovery with the chemo and everything? What was, was that, was that difficult to have the, that treatment with everything else that was going on? Yeah, it's a fun world, certainly. I suppose the good thing is that the roads are empty. The country was shut down, effectively. Nothing was happening in the UK. Well, still is to an extent, I guess. But going into hospital and yeah, being treated, the wards were emptier. Less people were in hospitals. I think we took different approach to it in the UK as to some other countries did. And I don't know what our isolation wards look like, but the wards I was on just felt like normal hospital wards. And I know that at St George's, for example, that they almost set up a different hospital within the hospital to deal with their COVID stuff. And I guess other hospitals in the UK would have done that. But you're living in the midst of a pandemic and for the NHS, it's pretty much business as usual to be perfectly honest. They just had less people coming through the door. Or, you know, we have a unique situation in the UK where, I think it's pretty unique actually, where the NHS kind of looks after you from cradle to grave and it's, um, it, it's just, you know, if I think about other countries I've lived in, the NHS is just very different to anywhere else. It's kind of part of it's part of the fabric of UK life, despite not being a very um, old institution. Really. And for me, it didn't really feel any different to how it would normally feel in an NHS hospital. Aside from, it was less busy. Aside from when I was admitted in an emergency, I was always in kind of private areas or private wards. So, I'm, you know, I may be misrepresenting that a bit, but when I had sepsis, I would say that, you know, we were in the pandemic and twice actually, um, besides sepsis a few months later, we were in the midst of the pandemic and both of those times I very much considered it to be kind of business as usual for the NHS. So I don't think anything really changed for me. I think public perception of it was very different, but here in the UK, the NHS just rolls on as normal. Yeah. And so where are you today? Like, are you considered to be in remission? Are you still on the path to remission? Where do you stand with um, your cancer journey now? Yeah, so I've been in remission for 17 months. So yeah, that like, came I finished. And then, yeah, I had enough bout of sepsis before Christmas last year. And I get scans every two to three months. So, I, I, you know, I turn up and get these CT scans. And then they review the results. I've, I've had one recently where, where there was a bit of an anomaly and um, I had to be re scanned for that. And I had like a fine needle aspiration and get my cells kind of scraped and checked, go away for a biopsy or that. But yeah, I've been 17 months in remission now, which is brilliant. And, and no signs of anything coming back. So 
I think. That's wonderful. It's yeah, it's really good. It is good. And yeah, you get a couple of scares, but fingers crossed at the minute everything is everything is okay. And yeah, even in the last few weeks where I've had a bit of a scare, um, yeah, I had a chat with a professor on Saturday and he said, let's just it's just um, normal, we haven't found any signs of disease and we'll just keep monitoring it. So yeah, I'll I'll have scans every two to three months now for about five years. Yeah, that's great. And so, I mean, even just talking with you today, and then I've read some of your articles and your blog posts that you've written, it seems like you've had, you have a really great sense of humor around everything that you've gone through and are currently going through. Is that something that you've always had to kind of cope with difficult things? Or is that something that kind of came up is the way to cope and, and deal with cancer and this journey that you're on? You know, I, I don't know. I think I've probably had a really easy life and I've never had anything really to complain about. I'm, I'm one of those people, really annoying people that has a quite an easy life uh, until I got cancer, clearly. <laughs> so I think it's probably my natural reaction to something in the, you know, early on in the early days, I thought, you know, rather than get on the phone to everybody, I'm just going to, I'm going to start writing because it's not going to talk back. Even though I put it on Facebook, it's not going to talk back. So I, I started to describe how I was feeling. And most people really liked it. Yeah, because the audience that I've chosen originally through Facebook, they know who I am, right? So they expect me to tell filthy jokes and to be inappropriate and just be this character that they've known all of their life, this kind of indefatigable character that's just, just there, you know, boundless energy and annoyingly positive all the time. And I thought, well, I'm not going to change that. You know, it's kind of who I am, right? So yeah, I don't think the humour was anything new. I think the gallows humour and the dark humour talking about cancer when at some point it was probably really quite serious. Yeah, the, the tumour in my right groin, by the time he got it out, it was three and a half inches wide. It was the size of a tennis ball. Wow. It was really, really big. Um, uh, so, you know, there's, there's things that you don't need to tell people because it will worry them. But, yeah, my mum my mum was an NHS lifer, worked for the NHS for 30 years. Nothing really phases her. Same with my sister. Still, NHS again, healthcare. I've got, I've got, they're, they're all over my phone, to be honest. And, you know, those people, I tell everything. And it's the same with my wife. Yeah, I, I tell her everything. And you, you were able just to, with everyone else, being able to write about it is, is kind of helpful because you get the message out there and then people can reflect on it and they can respond if they want to. But, it stops people taking control of your messaging. It stops people taking control of your story because I'm getting out there ahead of the news and I'm telling people how things are. And that's, you know, that's the news. I think there are far too many people out there, you know, right across the place. And I see this talking to other kind of cancer sufferers online where there are far too many people that are obsessed with other people's misfortune and, and sadly too many ghoulish people that are obsessed with death and suffering 
And I thought, if I just take control of my own message and take control of my own story, that's the best I can do. So, yeah, that, that blog has become surprisingly popular. Uh, you know, not just female cancer, but all kinds of kind of male cancer sufferers have looked at it. I'm not, not even men, actually, not just men. Uh, you know, I've kind of looked at it as a bit of a reference point as to a completely unvarnished description of how cancer affects somebody, how cancer affects somebody with a family, with a young family, how it dominates your life for a period. All of the totally embarrassing and cringeworthy things that happen to you during treatment, the things that happen in hospitals, especially public hospitals like we've got here in the big cities, um, just being able to describe that journey to people is, I, I think it's quite unusual, not many people do it, so I think it's been really helpful to people, and for me really it was just about taking control of the message, I, I didn't ever intend it really to be entertainment, I just had to get it out there, I had to say what I was feeling, because I didn't want to have a thousand text conversations with people, I uh, just, you know, just write it and see what happens, and, yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's really great, you know, for you to be so open and sharing your story, but I'm sure, you know, a lot of people, of course, cope with things in their own way and in, in such different ways. But I think there's something, you know, that says a lot about you to be able to take ownership of your journey and your story, um, and putting it out there for other people to, to digest. So something I wanted to ask you is, what is either the best piece of advice you have for other people or the best piece of advice that has been given to you? Okay, so just in terms of advice with healthcare, right? Most people are kind of scared of medicine, I think, in general, right? Healthcare is a bit murky for most people. They don't really understand how it works. Physicians, clinicians, they use terminology that people won't understand difficult for people to understand what's being told to them i think that a lot of people feel stupid trying to get clarification on things so that's the number one piece of advice keep asking questions what does this mean to me what's going to happen how are you going to do it how long will it take what are the side effects all these things keep asking questions number one Definitely. And don't be afraid to say no, right? Ultimately, healthcare is a service. They work for us. You're procuring a service, just like you would anything else. It's a life and death situation, but people are in control of their own healthcare uh, and their own choices. So I think, you know, never be afraid to ask questions, seek clarification question people's approaches. I do it frequently. It's really important. Don't be, don't be afraid to ask questions. That's number one. Number two, if people are worried about anything, call the doctor because they're going to know in 10 seconds. No amount of Googling is going to give you a, going to give you the answer. Yeah, most of the time, they're going to know in 10 seconds. Maybe not with penile cancer. But most of the time, the doctors can know, can know the answer. And I think people need not to be afraid to go and see the doctor because 
Yeah, thank you. That's really great advice for, for people to hear. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners about your journey or just in general? Sure, Lee. I think I think just, just in terms of you know, what we've spoken about today, right? When people look at cancer, it's easy just to you know think about you know effects of a surgery or chemo or whatever. I think if anybody's kind of starting on the journey, take one day at a time. It's surprising how long these things take to resolve. Yeah, it's going to be a minimum of five years. However quickly you get into remission, it's going to be a minimum of five years before you're kind of comfortable. So I'd say, yeah, in terms of learnings for me, it's just realising how long things take. Uh, and you just got to kind of trust the process. You know? So, yeah, I would definitely say that. Um, in terms of everything else, for me, it's important to remain positive, but not everybody can be this you know, annoying bundle of energy that's always positive and always happy and smiling about everything. And sometimes you have to find strength in other people. So it's really important to be around people that are you know, kind of always there, you know, the, the people that are the kind of unconditionals in your life. And if you can't find the strength to get through this thing on your own, you kind of need to buddy up, you know, and that's what your family is there for. So I think it's not a bad thing to find strength in other people. Uh, you know, sometimes you might need to, but it's certainly not something that everybody could deal with on their own. And the only other thing I would say is that not every day is going to be great. Sometimes you're going to go to some really dark places. Again, you know, one day at a time, the next day will probably be better. And however many dark places you go to in this journey, there's always good things to come. That's what I've found. So, yeah, I think that, that's probably what I would share more than anything else, that you know, not every day is dark, but there will be some dark days and you just have to find a way to get through Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on today's podcast and sharing your story with our listeners. And I wish you the absolute best in your continued cancer journey. Thank you very much. This podcast has been brought to you by the Urology Care Foundation, the official foundation of the American Urological Association. For more information on today's topic and for all things urology health, visit urologyhealth.org. That's urologyhealth.org.